0: Trying a slightly different look. I always like to fiddle with my look or my appearance or my my shtick. I do that in games and in real life. So let I me mean, know what you guys think. I'm thinking about getting a new jacket. I don't know. The problem is these kind of jackets are so expensive. But of course, you're here to listen to me talk about Iron Man. I imagine some of you have never seen my stuff before, so let me start start by saying that this is a rumination and it's long and rambling and terrible. So you should probably watch something else. Okay. I had a rather unpleasant accident where I got hit and then run over by a car in uh, 2005, February 2005. This movie came out in uh, April, I believe, Uh, 2008, give or take, somewhere in 2008. Now, that may not sound relevant to you, but I bring it up because I had pretty much just gotten to the point where I had started getting my life functional again. You know, that was a pretty unpleasant experience. I know. Shocking, right? And I had just gotten back to the point where I could start walking normally without the crutches and without, like, needing to constantly have some kind of pain medication. Long story short, the hospital kind of screwed up on the leg, and there's a reason that I had issues with it for a lot longer than I probably should have. Just summarizing there. Now, why is this relevant to Iron Man the movie? I almost said Iron Man 2. (laughs) We're not there yet. No, we're not there yet. It's relevant to Iron Man and the MCU as a whole because I'm not really a big fan of Iron Man, the comic. I've never really liked Iron Man, the comic. I've read his stuff, but with a few exceptions, I've generally found him to be pompous and arrogant and not have positive qualities that balance that out. I have gone on record as saying that I find Tony Stark, the comic version character, a villain more than a hero. So when I found out that they were coming out with Iron Man in the movie, my interest was kind of low. This is where this thing gets interesting, because if this movie had come out a year or two or three before, I wouldn't have seen it. I certainly wouldn't have seen it in the theaters. But by great fortune, by my take anyways, I was able to be at a point in my life where I was getting more financially stable. You know, I had I had that networking job that I'd finally gotten a decent raise at. And, you know, I was able to work on, you know, sitting most of the time. I was, you know, Everything was kind of lining up correctly. So when Iron Man came out, a few of my friends were like, hey, you want to go see that? I was like, yeah, okay. And it was just kind of a sure whatever thing. I like going to movies. I've got that from my mom. Then I loved the film and have loved the MCU ever since. Now, that love affair with the MCU might have started regardless of this. But I consider myself fortunate because of the wonderful timing of it, at least by my perspective. I would love to know how many of you out there are comic book fans or movie fans or just people who aren't actually a fan of either who happened to see this movie and kind of fell in love with the franchise, what would be, we would soon become calling the MCU, as a consequence of this movie. I'm really honestly curious because I think it's kind of awesome. This movie is what I call one of those happy accidents. Uh, this movie should not have been as good as it is. Let's just put that as bluntly as possible. In fact, this movie was nearly much worse than it was, uh, gosh, three or four times over, give or take. It's hard to define exactly where that got worse and where it got better. Because, as I'll discuss briefly, this film had an incredibly troubled development. as Starting as far back as 1990... Yes, 1990, 18 years before this film actually came out is when, they, when production had started work on Iron Man 1. Now, I'm being a little facetious about that because what happened is in the 90s, for those of you who were around at that uh, time, see, I imagine most of you, forgive me for segueing for a moment, I imagine most of you were around and, you know, at movie-going age when Iron Man 1 came out. I sincerely doubt I have anyone in, like, the teens range watching this right now. But how many of you were part of the movie going culture back in the 90s and following this whole comic book movie trend that was kind of doing its own thing and kind of not Sony was making its out its its attempts and forays and Fox was making its attempts and forays and both of them were selling And that's a whole other topic that I may end up discussing someday because there's some fascinating stuff that went into the development of what eventually became Spider-Man and X-Men, which weren't necessarily the first ones, but effectively were the first two real beginnings of the comic book movie thing. Uh, Let's call it the first comic book movie era, or perhaps I guess the second era if we're going to be completely uh, honest about it. Because the first era was the stuff that was mostly bad, then the second era is the stuff that was mostly good, and the third era starts with this film. Or with uh, the Incredible Hulk, if you prefer. Which is the next thing I'm going to bring up really quick. The request from multiple people, quite a few people voted for this. uh, Thank you, all of you, by the way. Is for MCU Phase 1 minus Incredible Hulk. I know Incredible Hulk does technically qualify as part of the MCU. And it does technically qualify as Phase 1. But I stress the word technically in both of those cases. From a production standpoint, it really didn't have a lot to do with the development of what was happening at the time, with one exception, which I will discuss in a minute because it's also relevant to Iron Man. Its story implications and relevance to the rest of the series is practically non-existent. In fact, if not for a single line by Banner in Avengers, you could legitimately argue that the Hulk movie is never canon going forward because it's never acknowledged going forward other than the existence of Hulk himself, which, I mean, that's not really that convincing by itself, no, is it? And finally, and this is just my opinion, so, in my opinion, The Incredible Hulk is not a movie that really fits in with the MCU. It was designed, it feels more like a second era film, you know, the X-Men, Spider-Man's I just mentioned film, than it does a third era film, like Iron Man feels like. It was developed and designed with most of the same mentalities that were going into the second era. Iron Man was the weird one and weird at the time. And it's funny looking back ten years ago and looking at a film that was considered weird and outlandish that has literally become the template for the MCU movie. I mean, even the recent Black Panther, no spoilers of course, followed the same general beats and patterns that Iron Man 1 established. Oh yes, I should mention this really quick. I will be spoiling all the movies within the MCU 1 without hesitation. What I mean by that is I will freely and openly discuss... Um, Pretty much the MCU up to, and including Iron Man 3, actually. I, I know I have notes about that later. I just mentioned that because if you don't want to be spoiled on those movies, this would be a good time to not watch the rest of this film. Okay. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, let's let's rewind now that we've finished our segue. Let's get back to talking about the 1990s because there's a company called Universal. It was like, you know what? Let's make an Iron Man film. And Universal certainly was riding high in 1990. They were; they had just come off of a lot of seri- a series of significant financial successes and criti- critically acclaimed films. They were good. They were riding high, and they're like, "We'll go ahead and try this one out." Now, I want to stress the way I put that because Iron Man, despite being, mm, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, Iron Man is one of those characters who. A reasonable amount of comic book fans know who he is. Most actual Marvel fans could tell you exactly about him and and consider him one of the major characters of of the the Marvel Universe. And then people who aren't a big fan of comics or aren't into Marvel comics, so in other words, non-comic-going society in general, looks at Iron Man and the most common responses I've gotten for this, and this was true back in the day as well, are who, oh, the robot, and... Oh yeah, The Alcoholic. Not a particularly well-known label. Nowhere near as mainstream as The X-Men. So Iron Man was considered kind of a slightly more esoteric label. So you might wonder, why would Universal go for it all? Well, it's because they were doing well financially and kind of were willing to accept that they could push out a film that wasn't going to be as successful because it would also be cheaper to make. I know that sounds contradictory, but trust me, from a corporate perspective, when you're doing well, continuing to make an average amount of money is a pretty decent thing to do. That fell through. Nothing ever came of it. The rights languished until they were sold off to Fox. Yes, that Fox in 1996, who by this point was already starting to circle the X-Men thing. Obviously, the, the X-Men movies hadn't come out at this point in time, not, not in strength or, or any kind of like that, but they were starting to think about moving into the direction of having some kind of cinematic backing for, you know, something, anything. And so Iron Man was one of the things they were working with. Fox failed to really do anything with this. And I'm, I'm just kind of skipping over the details, by the way. I know some of you uh, may, may know more about this, and indeed probably some of you do know more about this. The relevant point is that Fox then did nothing with it for about three years, and they're like, yeah, God, we need to recompense our expenses on this. Three years. Sold it off to New Line. It has now been nine years at this point in time. Then New Line, this is great. (laughs) New Line was like, hmm... Oh, I'm sorry, I should actually rewind a second. One of the bigger reasons why Fox decided not to do it is because they're already doing so many other comic book superhero things. I mean... We don't need to, we don't want too many comic book movies in the cinema, right? And I had to point that out because it's just funny considering the modern perspective. Let's see, this year we got, what, Deadpool 2, Avengers, Black Panther. Um, I know there's another one. I know there's another one, I can't think of it, but I know there's another one coming out. So Newline looked at it and said, all right, we got this. And they got together a team and they brought in writers, they brought in directors. We actually know a decent amount about the script they were working on and everything they were going with it. And then for seven years, they floundered in production hell. Finally, in 2006, it has now been 16 years at this point. In 2006, they gave up. They were just like, we can't get off the ground with this project. We're having conflicts with the director. We're having conflicts with the writing staff. Screw it. We give up. And the rights defaulted, and this is funny because, remember, each time they've been selling the rights, it's been to try and recompense some of the losses of buying them in the first place. The rights defaulted back to Marvel. And Marvel's like, oh, huh. Now, this is when I have to bring in Kevin Feige. And I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've seen several interviews of the man, and most people I've seen say it, and by most, I mean all people I've seen say it, say it like that. So I really do hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. But Kevin Fage was like, <clears throat> you know, I really legitimately believe we could build a, more of the multimedia empire of Marvel if we really established a strong, contiguous continuity of Marvel products in cinema. A Marvel Cinematic Universe, if you will. And he has actually believed in this for years. In fact, he's been pushing for it since the 90s. Now, there's actually a whole lot of backstory behind that, and I don't really want to cover that. Let's just say that he's been through some interesting times to get to 2006, when finally, 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 he was allowed to be really given the reins and work on a couple of films, Hulk and this one. Now, I'm going to drop a term on you that I'm going to be using periodically over the next couple of weeks as we talk about MCU Phase 1 and, of course, our personal lead-up to the Infinity War. God, I can't believe it's finally coming out. Ten years it's been. Can you believe that? Kevin Feige is what I call a mainliner now I'm sure that there well actually no I'm not sure I've actually looked into this there's no official title for this near as I can tell some people like to use the term producer some people like to use the term executive producer or creative direction or whatever but a mainliner is the one focal point for a creative work they're the people who are in charge of maintaining the overall and I hate to use this word vision of a work right easy example JMS Babylon Five. He was the mainliner for Babylon Five. Who the mainliner is across Star Trek has varied from time to time, you know. And and Kevin Fegi was the mainliner for the MCU with one important exception, which uh, we won't actually discuss as part of the uh, as 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 part of the MCU Phase One thing, because he he was the mainliner for all of Phase One up to and including Avengers. And that's relevant. I am of the opinion that a strong charismatic, leader-centric, a I, I detail-oriented mainliner is the key to success in a multi, um, let's call it a multi-part project, whether it's a series of games or a television show, which by its nature is episodic, or a series of films. You need that person at the top who can try and rein things in thematically, tonally, and most importantly with regards to actually maintaining a degree of continuity. Now, I know that sounds weird, and I know that I am in favor of continuity more than others. But even for a layman new moviegoer, the fact that Iron Man tied in with Thor, tied in with Captain America, tied in to Avengers. And I know this because I've talked to many, many, many people about this in preparation for this work and over the last several years. That added to the appeal of the entire MCU thing. It's one of the biggest reasons... Well, I shouldn't say that. It is my opinion that that is one of the major reasons why Avengers was such a phenomenal financial success. Because it had a mainliner who maintained a consistent vision and and a strong setup with a strong payoff. Avengers being the payoff, and of course, payoff—the payoff is going to be the big one where everyone wants to go see that. Because even if you were only interested in Thor, you still went to see Avengers, and even if you only interested in Captain America, you only you went to see Avengers, and you get my point, right? <clears throat> now, now we get to the funny part. Kevin Feige really had to push for this. God bless him on this, because he was like, "No, we need to make this happen." Okay, so let's let's start shopping this around. All right, so let's shop it around. Um, I forget the exact number, I I found it in my research, but it's 30-some-odd writers were approached and denied this work. (laughs) Nobody wanted to write the script. Nobody wanted to work on it. Hell, they had trouble getting someone to direct this thing. Nobody wanted to work on this project. This is in the wake of... Uh, Spider-Man 2, I I mean, Spider-Man 3 at this point, but you get my point. Spider-Man was doing well, X-Men was doing well. Um, The movie industry had kind of changed. The the, the second era, as I call it, was pretty much going strong. Again, Hulk. And I was like, uh, okay, how about you work on this, maybe? No, no. And one of the, this is really funny, one of the biggest reasons that a lot of people didn't want to work on it is most people said, I'm not going to work on, a, on an esoteric project like that. Who the hell's Iron Man? Some people didn't want to work on it because Marvel had never funded their own film before. And that's usually a bad sign. Like, a company that's never put out their own cinematic production before usually fails miserably at it. I can actually give you a direct example of that. It. It's a company called Squaresoft. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't need to go into further details. But that is an example of a company that is first trying to fund its own film, and it fails miserably. Financially. I want to stress that point. So, the other problem was people were looking at this and they're like, hmm... Okay, so it's it's a comic book film by a studio that's never done this before. Um, and it's about a character nobody's ever heard of. And you want me to do this in the wake of the X-Men and everything else... Um, no, no, I don't think I will be doing that, thanks. Go ahead and give it to the next person. This, fi- this script had so many issues. Then, by what is mostly coincidence, again, this is such a lucky film, John Favreau, and I really hope I'm saying that name right, because I have a lot of respect for the man, was brought into the project. Here's the thing. Remember how I mentioned they kind of have the, the MCU formula? Well, it's in more than just the, the films themselves. Marvel has since crafted and perfected what is effectively a film making formula now nowadays they actually have far more resources and backing and political clout to accomplish this but what they effectively did was they looked out for talented directors who were willing to take a risk and were willing to try something they wanted to get people who weren't big name stars big name directors who wouldn't be as expensive remember Marvel was backing this one financially and, you know, they, they don't have... As, I know it's strange to think, but Marvel didn't have access to tons and tons of money to fling at this. And then they went for actors who were reasonably high profile, but not as high profile as they could have gone. and Not as high profile as was being suggested originally, certainly. But John Favreau, he looked at this and he said, hell yes, I want to do this movie. I want to do... And I love this, by the way. I want to do an adult comic book movie now we can argue back and forth as to whether there has been one or not I have heard strong arguments for example that X-Men 2 was already an adult comic book movie regardless of opinion or perspective his phrasing of that what he meant was I want to do something new the the phase 3 concept I want to try to make something that deals with far more believable and realistic characters that are very down to earth I want a lot of character focus, and I want the film and the superhero part to be believable. I want viewers to look at that and think that could actually be happening in real life. And so, a lot of the story almost kind of wrote itself from that point. The whole Vietnam War thing just nixed, moved far more to the present day, um, bringing in conflicts in the Gulf, the entire situation with the uh, God. Let's see, Arabian, Hungarian. I forget all the others, the, the terrorist organization of the Ten Rings and bringing that into, like, modern-day corporate America as part of this and having the, the flashy lights and going through the casino and all that. Just he, They wanted to, this to look like something that you could see happening if you happened to turn your head and look at it just right over there across the way. And he also got some help in two ways— uh, actually, three ways, excuse me. Um, four ways? Hang on. <laughs> yeah, no, four ways. I'm I'm done, I'm done, I swear. First of all, he got... And I wrote all these names down. Please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these. I have a lot of respect for these men. I'm sure a lot of you will recognize some of these names. He got Mark Miller. He got Brian Michael. Uh, hang on. Yeah, Brian Michael Benda, excuse me. Joe Quesada, i sure you know him. Tan Brevut, uh Or is it Bevut? I can never remember. Alex Alonzo, Ralph Macchio. All of these people were brought in to help advise and give direction and concepts to the character. People who had been writing for comic books, and for Iron Man in specific, for years. So, for one... and I mentioned this, this is so funny. What basically happened is exactly what usually doesn't happen when it comes to a video game movie. They treated the source material with respect. And they brought in the people who had already been doing the writing for that character to consult so they could craft that character. Now, as I've said before, the MCU Tony Stark is pretty different from the comic book Tony Stark. But I actually do think it is for the better. Because he wanted Stark to be relatable and understandable, and he wanted him to be a legitimately good person at his heart. Um, he, I'm not going to quote what he, what John Favreau said about it word for word, because it's laden with cuss words, but... He wanted someone who could be relatable and charismatic and someone that people wanted to succeed despite being a snarker. And so he turned to Robert Downey Jr. Now, Favreau was insistent upon this. The studio fought him on this one more than once. And Favreau just dug his heels and he's like, No, you don't understand. I want someone who has already lived through the character arc in real life that Tony Stark is going to go through. And that was his reasoning. And he brought Robert Downey Jr. in, who was, well, (laughs) I don't want to cover too much of that, but let's just say that this was on the up end of his life. He had gotten out of the pit that he had been in, just the pit that he'd been in. And you know what? Credit where credit is due. The fact that he managed to turn that around at all is actually phenomenal. I, I give him huge props for that. And he actually, this actually wasn't his first film comeback, but this was his success story. Robert Downey Jr. came back, and he looked at this, and he said, All right, and he gave it his all. Junior, in fact, Robert Downey Jr., in fact, insisted that he be more involved with the development of film as a whole rather than just being the actor because he wanted to really be a part of this, this experience and this character. It's worth noting, by the way, that at about this point in time, no one was really thinking about a franchise about movies, except for Kevin Feige, the man with the the pie-in-the-sky dreams. That's never happening, is what everyone else was saying. Now, there were plans and ideas and development in this direction, but none of that really started to fabricate until more of the movie started to cohese. Studio execs started to come by and see what was going on, Um, They had actually managed to pull a lot of uh, really good marketing stunts, uh, raising awareness of who Iron Man actually was and what he was about significantly prior to the film coming out. And they had enough backing to start some of the pre-work and some of the other projects they wanted to do. And we'll talk more about that next week when we get to future films because we will be talking about the whole MCU phase one, of course. Now, this brings me to the next two things. So I've already said two things. You got The Advisors and he had Robert Downey Jr. The third thing was Obadiah Stane. Now, conventional comic book movie wisdom, I know that sounds like a weird sentence, at this point in time was you bring in the big villain for the first film. You bring in the arch nemesis. And that arch nemesis is the person who's going to kick off the film, because you need to grab the audience's attention with the biggest name villain you can, and you need to start with a bang. That's why Magneto was in X-Men 1, that's why the Green Goblin was in Spider-Man 1, there's other examples I can't think of right now, please forgive me. (laughs) That's what they wanted. They wanted to... That's also why the general, whose name I can't think of, was actually the main villain of Incredible Hulk. Um, Although you could argue if the abomination is or not, but shrug. So... You know, you have to start big. So everyone was saying, we have to bring in the Mandarin. (laughs) Everyone involved was pretty much in agreement on this until Favreau was looking at it, along with the consultants and Robert Downey Jr. himself. Remember, he'd been more involved in the process. And all of them looked at this and said, this is a terrible idea. Huh? What do you mean? He has ten magic rings. So, that's in the comics. Yeah, but remember, we want this to be believable. I mean, we might be able to build up to that later. But we need this to be more down-to-earth. Okay. Well, what else we got? Well, how about the other corporate mogul who ends up having his own suit? And thus the Ironmonger gets dragged in. And they got really lucky to get Jeff Bridges in this role. He wasn't really a big-name star at this point in time. But I want to, I just want to pause for a moment to give huge credit to Jeff Bridges. He does a great job as Obadiah Stain in every one of his aspects. It's really, really wonderful stuff. So they brought in Stain. And now, so they've got Robert Downey Jr., they've got the Ironmonger, they've got the advisories. We need one last thing to really cohese this. I mentioned there were writing issues. There were several scenes. They were... They were uh, uh, shooting when they didn't have a complete script. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, scripts usually go through six or seven or so stages, depending on the film, from, from you know, initial concept to the, the, the lines that the actor's reading up there on camera. We were at about stage three or so in that when they started filming Iron Man 1. But Jon Favreau, and this is why I give the man a lot of credit, said, let's work with that. Let's turn that into strength. Now everyone's freaking out because, oh my god, what? You want, to, you want to start filming without a script? I'll give you another film that uh, filmed without a script. That was Transformers 2. Yeah. But John Favreau, he said, all right, we know the general gist of the scenes. We don't have specific dialogue. You know your character. Give me some lines. And so what they'd do, and this is kind of brilliant, is they'd film, and they would do the scene... And most of the actors involved would just kind of improv the specific words. And then they'd be like, okay, let's run through it a second time. And they did like four or five takes of each scene with what is effectively different dialogue in these scenes. Now, they obviously didn't do the whole movie this way, but it helped to basically make the characters more personally connected with the actors that are playing them because now they had to think, what would my character say here? You can't just recite a line and try to keep the, the thing going. No, it's, you kind of get into the role in that case. I also want to take a quick aside and say that this is actually one of my personal favorite forms of acting, back when I used to actually do acting. Um, it is pretty much the in-between point of purely scripted acting and purely improv acting, which I've also done both of. In the middle point, you know the direction. You know that this scene has to end there, I have to have mentioned this, you know, I have to have mentioned uh, this monocle right here. Please don't ask why I have a monocle here. If you're a follower of my show, you know why I have this, but it's just, you have to to mention the monocle. I have to end up over there, and I have to address this person about this, and they're probably going to address something back at me. I'm not sure what they're going to say. And so I know the structure of the scene, and I know what my character cares about. So now I've got to get the words. And the words come a little bit more naturally when you do that. So if you ever wondered why a lot of the dialogue in Iron Man 1 is very natural and fluid, that's why. I can actually name one scene right off the top of my head that I can po- point to that was just like this. It's the first press conference, right after he gets back, gets back from being rescued. And he's like, all right, everyone, sit, sit. And he just starts talking about his dad. You know, was he that great? Was he that awesome? That's all that improv stuff, pseudo improv stuff going on there. Good stuff, good stuff. All of this makes Iron Man 1 something that I've already said for me, but it makes it, it pretty much emphasizes why I care so much about these movies, why I still enjoy them, why, even though they are fairly formulaic, I went to Black Panther a few weeks ago and I loved it. It's because it's believable. No matter how fancy they get or how much magic they add in or how much super tech they put in, there's always this feeling of grounded believability that they really try to inject that realism into the characters and into what they're doing and how they interact with the world around them. That salvages what would otherwise be the, the plain ridiculous. For me, personally. That's just my opinion. And I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this as well. So... Let's talk about, so now we get got to talk to the movie, get to the movie proper. i got three pages of notes, so I hope you'll be patient with me. Let's talk about how Tony Stark is a likable dick. Because he is a prick. He is someone who is not a particularly pleasant person. He is very smart. His int score is very high. His charisma score is very high. And that's good, because otherwise I'd want to punch him in his stupid face. But the important part is that likable thing. Even before his revelation, we see a decent amount about Tony Stark before things go to absolute hell. And we see that even though he is snarky and irreverent, at no point does he cross the line into truly being an asshole. He, at worst, gets to the point of basically not really caring about the same thing that other people do. But what I really find fascinating is the way he... he directs himself at people differently based on whom he's talking to. Most of the people he's close to or he cares about, he tends to be very casual because he doesn't have to bother or try. He knows Rhodey, he knows Piper, he knows Stane, whatever. And the dynamic between those major characters is going to be a huge part of this film. But when he's interacting with other people, he masks himself differently and he tends to put other people on the defensive verbally a lot by having an answer for everything they say, and then posing his own questions which he doesn't think they can respond to. So, um, quick quick aside, really quick here. You know the part where he, like, he stumbles out of the, the funvy, and he's, he's trying to go through the desert? How many of you think that that action saved his life? I'll raise my hand on this one. For those of you who haven't seen this film, spoiler alert, they were sent there by Stane to kill him. But they weren't told whom they were killing. But as he stumbles out, you know they would recognize him and be like, oh my god, it's Tony Stark. Holy crap, we gotta save him. Thankfully we've got this guy who's a great doctor. There's a lot of coincidences in this film. I'm just gonna say that and move on. It is a flaw. <laughs> There's a lot of coincidences in this film. Let's just accept that and move on. I want to comment really quick about the directing. Uh, John Favreau does some really interesting directing choices. Uh, one scene in particular I'll point out when we get there. But if you'll notice, he pays a lot of attention to transitions. A lot of effort is put into the editing and into the, the camera shots to make sure that each transition either s- flows smoothly to the next one or deliberately feels jarring into the next one. Now that's, in my opinion, good directing. It shows, it, it basically tells you when there's a break in the scenes, because the scenes that flow smoothly together are all part of, for lack of a better term, one stanza. And then the breaks starts a new stanza and a new chord. I'm using terrible analogies here, so please forgive me. So the first thing we see is we see Stain's ability to cope and roll with the punches. Now, I'm going to be talking a bit about this throughout the film, but the thing that really struck me going through this with analysis mode on is that Stain is very good about playing the game. He knows how the system works. He knows how to move through the system. He knows how to control the system. He has been very he's been on top of the system for years and he's really really good at it. In fact, if not for his particularly dynamic character flaw, which we'll talk about later, he probably would just continue to be winning forever, just stay on top. Now, this is almost in direct contrast to his uh, to Pepper Pepper Potts to Miss Potts. She is a wall. She doesn't bend or dodge or move with the wind. She is just a giant brick wall. But she at no point uh, breaks. She at no point actually is shifted or affected by Stark himself and by the things happening around her, with a couple of notable exceptions. Um, She, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. She doesn't put up with any of it. She just moves along smoothly. Like, yep, pfft, nope, pfft, nope, pfft, nope, deal with this, deal with this. Very business-like, but mostly an aspect of the kind of willpower that it takes to effectively run the, the internal affairs of the company. That is to say, being Tony Stark's personal assistant. Now, I bring that up because, spoiler alert, will, Potts will end up uh, effectively running and taking over the company in the very next film we'll be talking about next week. But I think that was a natural move for her. And it's interesting to see... That in total contrast thematically with Stain, because Stain plays the game, Potts does not. But the difference is that, well, we'll talk more about the game later. Let's let's just leave that for now. Just remember that. Now, uh, then we go to Roadie. Before I talk about Roadie, Mr. Uh, Colonel Rhodes, we have to talk about T- Terrence Howard. Now. I have heard three completely conflicting reports on what exactly happened with regards to Terrence Howard and why he was not brought back for any of the future films. He was just ejected out and he was not brought back and I can't tell you with 100% certainty why. Yes, I know he's given an interview on it, and I know that that is contradicted by other interviews which have been given by other people. That's why I say I, I, I can't give you a definitive answer. I hate I hate it when that happens. Elder Scrolls lore run. But I cannot tell you definitively why he was dropped from the project, and we ended up getting... Oh, God, I suddenly can't think of his name. Crap! I hate it when this happens because everyone immediately rushes forward to tell me his name. We got the guy who plays him in 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 all the future films. Now I will say, regardless of whether you you know whatever happened in real life, whatever drama was there, and I almost guarantee it was drama because otherwise it would have just been like, oh yeah, this happened, so I couldn't come back. Boop! No, no, no! For everyone to be this emotional about it and to uh, have such differing accounts, this was drama. Let's, Let's make that clear. But whatever actually happened, I do like Don Cheadle. That's it. I remembered! Don't tell me! Don't tell me in the comments! I I remembered! I personally like Don Cheadle better as Rhodey. I feel like he was a smoother actor. Uh, He comes across as more... I suppose the word I want to use here is friendly. Every time I saw Terrence Howard smile, it felt fake. Now, I suppose that's the direction they were going with it. He was very stark military no pun intended but at the same time you'd think that's not what the role was written as if you follow me his dialogue and his actions don't line up with someone who is who is that and I honestly feel like Don Cheadle managed to get that particular slice of characterization better I also think Don Cheadle had better uh, chemistry with most of the other actors but that's unrelated that being said, can we finally get a War Machine movie? God. Anyways, I mean, you've been teasing it since the first film. They tease War Machine in this film. Come on. I mean, I know we get War Machine. It's just, anyways, anyways. So, <laughs> um, let's see here. Oh, yeah, I wanted to mention something else about POTS. This, this really struck me. Excuse me. If I use the word manager and explain and, and say that word to you, I imagine that you have a general gist of what comes into your mind. It's probably even a, a derogatory term at this point in time. However, Pepper Potts is a manager, not in the general how it's been dragged through the mud by idiot managers for decades. No, I mean someone who legitimately is good at managing a situation and the people within it. And that's one of the things that really uh, strikes me as her, because Stain won't manage people. Stain will slide through or around people, you know, the the indirect conflict, almost passive-aggressive kind of thing. Pepper, Pepper Potts, will say, oh, well, this needs to happen, and you need to do this here, sign this here, you know. She will actually manage the situation. It is fascinating. In my opinion, the dynamic between Stain and, and Potts is actually one of the more interesting character uh, contrasts in the entire film. So forgive me for spending so much time on it. So then Stain tries to have uh, Tony killed. I have one very small question for you guys, and I don't have an answer for this. Why do you think he did it now? Why not later? Why not earlier? You know, he's, he's on top of things. Stain is doing great financially. He effectively runs the company. You know, No issues here. Why do it now, exactly? I don't have any good answers for you, but I do want to bring up that his motivation is very self-apparent. He's not doing this for money. He's not doing this for greed. He's not doing this because he is ambitious. And that's actually funny. His character motivations are very self-apparent, and that's in total contrast to Raza. Now, I'm actually going to skip over a note I have here, because I want to talk about Raza really quick. Or Raza? You know, I don't think they say it in the film. I don't remember them saying it. He's the leader, the local leader of the Ten Rings. According to some of the ancillary material, the Ten Rings do actually work for the Mandarin, which is funny, because if you think about it, at this point in time, the Mandarin is actually active, so that would make sense. Raza is uninteresting. He's boring. He has no character motivations whatsoever other than to be evil he is to put it as bluntly as possible a thug and that makes the dynamic between him and stain very interesting because stain is not a good person he is a totally okay with probably illegally selling incredibly advanced weapons to whoever the hell has the money regardless of if you're selling weapons to people targeting them at your own country's troops, which I'm pretty sure does qualify as illegal. But then again, this is a fictional universe, so I'm not willing to say that 100%. It is certainly immoral. Not amoral. Immoral. That brings me to my next point. He's also totally okay with ordering murdering. Oh, and murdering himself in order to accomplish whatever he wants. But Raza, he's just a plot point. There's no characterization there. There's no presence there. And no, no offense to the actor, he actually does a good job with the role. He doesn't have a lot of lines. He has at least one big speech and that's basically it. But he does actually have some good, you know, posture and facial expression. So I'll give him credit for there. But he just had an empty role. And that, of course, makes him an interesting concept contrast to Sin. Let me just go ahead and say that, while I hesitate to say that Yinsen was my favorite character in this film, he's in the running. He was an exceptionally pragmatic man. And I want to stress that word. He wasn't necessarily a good guy or a bad guy or a medium guy. He was just exceptionally pragmatic. He was in there. He knew the score. He had no delusions about what was going on. He also never sold out Stark. Did you notice that? He never sold out Stark, even as they were going to put a hot uh, hot coal into his mouth. Which, by the way, for those of you not aware, would be incredibly horrible. Not just immediately, but for quite a while after. And that says something about the kind of... moral fiber that Jensen had. And thus he serves a perfect contrast to Raza, who has no moral fiber, and who indeed has no character... Raza is a wrecking ball over there. Yinsin is a person. And the actor, who is actually Persian, um, nails it. Nails it perfectly. Does a great job. Now, the whole scene... I don't actually have a lot to say about a lot of the scenes in the cave. A lot of time is spent on this. And it's good. It's all character stuff. It's all down-to-earth stuff. But it also establishes a very important point why we should give a crap about Tony Stark. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing, but this was a deliberate thing on behalf of the writers. Let me explain it this way. Would you be as enthused about someone who can do amazing things because they have basically limitless resources and wealth and political connections? I mean, I'm not saying that can be done badly. I like Batman too, (laughs) You know, just to name one example of that, or Black Panther, to name a recent example. But you have to establish... Well, I shouldn't say you have to, but I would say creatively you should establish that character to be a good person, important, so we can root for him, and someone who is at least capable and competent when they lack their major advantage. I'm going to take a weird segue here. Luke Skywalker, I know, over in the Thrawn trilogy, way back when uh, Timothy Zahn was first really starting to begin what would effectively become, eventually become called the EU... He wrote a lot of scenes for Luke. Now I want you to, for those of you who have read those novels, I want you to picture the scenes with Luke. Because he did several scenes where Luke didn't use, rely on, or have the Force. He took away Luke's greatest advantage, and then made Luke work his way through the problem anyways. It established Luke as a character who doesn't need to lean on that like a crutch. It's one of the reasons I like his presentation of those books so much. And it is the Luke I tend to prefer so much. So they do the same general concept here with Stark. He is, to quote the meme, in a bo- in a cave with a box of scraps. But he still manages it. He focuses on the problem. He treats everything as this equation to be solved. He makes his plans. He he makes his plans in pieces because he knows that if they just make it the suit immediately, everyone will figure out what they're going on and he does so because it all just kind of fits in his head. I like that, and I like what they do with that. By the way, real quick, real quick aside. There's this big hubbub about the Jericho missile, which is basically a missile that goes into a bunch of little missiles that does a ton of damage. It's basically a tank, uh, it's a spread-fire tank missile. That's cool and awesome, and you can see why people would be so impressed by it. It is really weird to look back at that with, with, for lack of a better term, historical context, given what we see in more recent Marvel movies we've seen just how insanely far stark has taken his technology and how far the the development of shield has gone and how many resources the wakandans have you know it's just fascinating looking at a missile that's a spread missile and thinking that's one of the best weapons in the world but at the time it was and i want to bring something up i double checked the timeline when i was going into this project to look at the mcu phase 1 they haven't found Steve Rogers yet, and that means they haven't found the Tesseract yet. Now, that's kind of in contradiction with some things we find out later and earlier, and I'm going to bring that up when we get to Captain America itself. Uh, or Actually, no, I guess I'll be bringing that up when we get to Avengers, where it really comes up. But the relevant point is, whether that lines up or not, the intention is that the world is still relatively standard tech, that the most advanced thing in this movie is the Iron Man suit itself, which, again, compared to later stuff, is still fairly low tier. That's important, I think, because it helps to establish a ground level. We have a baseline now, and that will help to infer the, for lack of a better term, power levels of the entire Phase 1. The fact that Loki, who is very low-tier, relatively speaking, power-wise, and his army of people with laser guns is the major threat of Avengers, says a lot about how low-key all of this is. And that was all done deliberately. You start low. You don't start with the big names. You don't start with the big stuff. You start down here, and you scale up slowly. And in about, I guess, five or so weeks now, we'll see what happens when you finally get to high-tier, when Thanos shows up. Or Thanos. I can never remember how they pronounce it. Sorry. So Raza's terrible. Tony's interesting. Um, There's a line where they're talking and they talk about family. And, you know, Yinsen mentions his family and he will go see them soon. Oh, that still hurts a little bit. And I'm not talking about when he dies. I mean, before that. And then he asks Tony, who's your family? And Tony says, uh... And he doesn't really have an answer for that. Tony did obviously love his mother. We know this from, uh... mm, from Civil War, and Tony, Tony obviously did have a complicated relationship with his dad, which we see in, like, three separate films, including this one, but no, we know who Tony's family is. It's the close circle of friends that he believes he can trust and rely on, Potts, Stain, and "Rody." Yinsen naturally slides into that, and I like to think that Stark is the kind of person, this is just my impression, at least at this point in history, I like to think that Stark is the kind of person who, based on his nature, I mean, he has he has basically been, been swimming in money his whole life, and he is really smart, and he is really charismatic. He has tools, if you follow me. He has what most of us will never have. But... Anybody who is sufficiently capable of keeping up with him or willing to put up with his BS sufficiently, he just kind of, to use a weird analogy, rather than keeping the shields up, anybody who withstands that long enough, he reaches out and pulls inside his shields. They become part of his, for lack of a better term, family from that point on. And I think this, is, this really has followed through in the future MCU movies, past Phase 1, when he starts to slowly include most of the Avengers inside his family. So, they do a lot of build-up. A lot of build-up to this scene. I, I've kind of been talking you know, of, of character dynamics and whatnot. I wish I had more to say about Jensen. He's just amazing. Then, then they finally have the payoff... When when he finally puts on the suit, the Mark I, if you will, and just starts stomping through these assholes. And the film has actually gone out of its way to establish these people as unpleasant people. They are the equivalent of stormtroopers. You know, they're designated bad guys. It's probably also part of the reason why Raza had no characterization to him, because he's a bad guy. Stain is a complicated character. Raza is a bad guy, you follow? Acceptable target. So he just... Two things I want to point out before we get to the next big moment. First, I want you to pay attention to the directing of that scene. In fact, do yourself a favor sometime. I did this too. When you're watching... Pretty much from when he puts on the suit and then up until he finds Yinsen's dying body. That stretch of time, mute the film and watch it. I know that sounds weird. But if not for the music... And for the build-up, the directorial style of those scenes is like it's a horror film. It is done like your classic style horror film, with Iron Man being the monster and all the fleeing people being either you know, the desperate fleeing civilians or the military throwing themselves at the monster futilely. Watch it sometime. It's fascinating the way he presents that. Now, of course, with the audio on, we have this badass music playing, and with the presentation and slow buildup, he's really been doing a slow boil the whole film at this point, we understand why he is not the monster. We can root for him. But thanks to that directorial style, we see how they view him as a monster. Brilliant little touch there. Then he meets Jensen. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life. I'm sorry. That scene gets to me every time I see it. I wrote down a note here in my notes. It's literally in all caps, which I usually don't sketch out in in, pen, anger. The next scene after that has no music. You notice that? He stomps out. There's no music. There's just the thong, thong thong as he's coming out there. And they all flail wildly and pointlessly at him. And then he kills the crap out of most of them. Even when they finally start to manage to hurt him by, by hitting the correct servos. I mean, he's not invincible. This is not a super well-built suit. He built this in a cave with a box of scraps. Even when they're doing this, even when they're breaking him down, at first he still refuses to run and to hit his jetpack, which is always the final phase of the plan. Because he is so goddamned angry. He wants these people to hurt for what they did to him, and to Yinsen, and to God knows who else. And if you notice, a lot of his targets for the flamethrowers isn't the people, it's the weapons. Because he's angry at them, too. And I guarantee you, he's angry at himself. Now, this is a hugely important moment. Because this is the moment that Tony Stark will spend, uh, counting this movie, four films really trying to recover from. This is the beginning of his character arc right here. He has sunk to his lowest low, but he doesn't rise back up out of that in this film. He is still down there by the end of it. That's the whole point of this whole multi, you know, movie franchise thing. He. <sighs> I can summarize it very simply. When he is finally rescued by Rhody, he can't snark at him. Rhody can! Rhody's like, oh, next time you come in the, you ride with me, okay? Stark can't even say anything. That's when you know it's serious right there. So... Stain continues to roll with it. He's good at that. I mentioned that before. Really good at playing the game. Um, Tony's mentality is so obvious in hindsight. I can't believe this never really clicked with me. Tony doesn't care about the game. He knows it's there. He knows there's things you do. This is what you say in public. This is what you say to the press. This is what you say to the board meeting. This is what you say to interviewees. This is how you get the contracts. This is where you spend the money. You put some money here for public works to make people happy. That's all the game. He knows that game. He just does not give a crap. Like, he's put up with it to an extent before. But as of now, the game has become meaningless to him. There's actually a wonderful visual analogy. It's much later in the film, so forgive me for bringing it up now. But it's relevant because it shows his mentality perfectly from this moment onwards. It's later when he's got his super fancy, expensive car. And that car, to him, is a toy. Or at least it was a toy. He had lots of toys. He gathered them. He... there's a scene earlier where he's talking to Pepper, and he said, you know, he's like, uh, "Is it significant of his uh, uh, spring period? Right? Uh, is, it's a good painting? Yes. And how much? It, what's it ludicrously overpriced? Okay, buy it, store it. It was all meaningless to him. We can see that Tony Stark, for all of his everything, really did have nothing that he really was unhappy in his life, and he just kind of rolled with it because, I mean, what else is there? What he has found is something that most people in real life would really love to have in their lives, and that is purpose. So Tony Stark throws a wrench into the game, knowingly and and willingly. He knew this was going to happen. He knows how the game works. He just doesn't give a crap. Fling! (laughs) Because the one thing about the game that's really interesting when you think about it, this is true in real life as well, is that it's all very fragile. Super delicate. The moment something, forgive me for using this terminology, real gets involved, the game falls apart instantly. I actually kind of love it when fiction properly demonstrates that. You know, oh my god, we've got this, and we've got this, and we've got this. And then, you know, the Hulk shows up. Screw you. I'm exaggerating, but you get my point. So, then, with some time to think and concentrate, Stark mentions, why don't we get into the energy business? This is something I find very interesting. (sighs) Stain approaches him. Let me me just bring that up, because that's relevant for the next three scenes that happen. Stain approaches him. Stark does not go to Stain. I don't think that was a deliberate thing on behalf of the character, because I think he still trusts Stane to some extent. But I also think that that is a very deliberate part on, on behalf of the writers and directors. Stain comes to him, just keep that in mind, and then he starts trying to convince him about the energy business thing. Let me take a quick aside and say that with the kind of brilliance and technology that Stark can make, and with the kind of resources and sway he has, he can make a bagrillion dollars in virtually any industry he wants to. And I could say that from real-life perspective, and I could say that from the fact that that's actually what he does. He does leave the weapons business, and he still makes tons of money. The energy business is actually quite a lucrative one, and it is not the only seemingly mundane business that can make you tons of money. Weapons are nice and glamorous and all, but trust me, there's other ways. I think Stark knows that to some extent or another. And if he could actually make the arc reactor work long-term, actually have this kind of clean energy source. There's a reason that point got brought up in Avengers more than once. Anywho, <clears throat> next thing though, so Stane approaches him. Now, shortly thereafter, I'm going to take a quick aside and mention Agent Colson. First of all, wow, it was weird seeing Agent Colson again. I mean, yeah, I know he kept going on the show, but you know, <laughs> first of all, let me just say that I think Agent Colson is awesome. So awesome that I'm awesomed by the fact that he became a major character of Marvel after this because he's awesome. He hits an extremely specific brand of awesome. He does it in this film. He does it in all his films, but he still does it in his very first entry here because he comes across as almost mundane, but without being boring. He's quite charismatic, but he's also very straight-laced. But he's not a pushover. But he's very polite. He manages this really weird tightrope in his performance of just basically being the forgettable agent. And he is simultaneously relatable and whatever the exact opposite of relatable is. You know, because you could see him as pretty much the er-G-man, uh, right? But at the same time, he's also the kind of guy you could see just going to the grocery store. Like, Hi. you know. I really like him, and I really like his performance. Here's a question for you. He shows up to be like, "Hey, we're here to debrief Tony Stark." and he, meant he spends a decent amount of the movie trying to get this interview with him. Obviously, it's a low priority, otherwise he would have done, you know, what, what director uh, oh my God, what Director Fury does at the end of the film. So it's a low-priority issue. So why do you think he's here? In concept of the, of the whole MCU, I know it wasn't really designed and planned yet. But with everything that is going to come, and what we know even in the past, with Howard Stark especially, and his involvement with what would eventually become S.H.I.E.L.D., what do you think Coulson was doing there? Now, I have a take on this. I'd love to hear your thoughts, as always. I think he's there to check up on him. I think there are people at S.H.I.E.L.D. who have legitimate loyalty to Howard Stark, and therefore care about his son as a consequence. So when his son went through something really, really horrible, they want to check up on him and try and figure out what happened and how it happened. That's my take on it. Because to be blunt, I don't really think they have, at this point in time, the necessary sway and scope to know that he built an Iron Man suit, to put it into such terms. Maybe I'm wrong, because that's the obvious other answer. The only reason I find that unbelievable is if I, f- I feel that if they had known this, if they were fully cognizant of the Iron Man project, for lack of a better way to put it, I think they would have made this a little bit of a higher priority than a guy who can be easily brushed away. Just my opinion. Moving on. <clears throat> so, um, so getting back to what it is. So, Stane approaches him. Then two things happen. First, he approaches Potts. He approaches Pepper Potts. And there's this wonderful little scene where she has to pull this thing out and then put the new thing in so he can function, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's good stuff. I don't have much to say about it, other than the fact that it is part of him reaching out to the people he considers his family. Now, Pepper, she, respo- she reciprocates. You know, there's obviously I care about you too. Then he goes to Rody, And this is where I really feel that the roadie stark relationship breaks down a bit. it's probably one of my biggest complaints about this film because he goes to roadie and roadie pretty much shuts him down dismisses him like the way he speaks and the words he says both pretty much indicate okay <laughs> i think you're crazy i think you're on something and i think you need know, get go get your head on straight okay i'll see you around dude and You'll notice pretty much at that point, Rhodey leaves his family circle until he is, by circumstance, dragged back into it. And I feel like that's one of the bigger flaws there. Now, I get that they have completely different mindsets. It's not like two people have to agree on everything. But we have such a fundamental philosophical difference between Rhodey and Stark that I don't even know how to reconciliate that. So then the board claims that Stark has post-traumatic stress. Which is hysterical, because he does. But they claim that as they don't care if he actually has that. This is still part of the game. And, of course, uh, Stain isn't stupid. Knows Stark is working on something. And he's basically planning round two. Again, dynamic. He knows knows how to roll with the punches. So, it's worth noting, though, that from this point on, Stain comes across as a lot more frayed than he has earlier. Like, you can tell his patience, his tolerance. If, if you were to think of his skin, his, his, his ability to deal with this, and I don't just mean Stark, but deal with the whole situation as an HP bar, his HP is getting low. Great performance by Jeff Bridges. Um, <clears throat> so then they designed the suit. Let me just go ahead and say I love the design of the suit in these films. I really, really do. It looks awesome. It is what I envision nowadays when I think of Iron Man. It is not too armored, not too ostentatious, but still gives a very strong clong kind of impression. You can feel, for lack of a better term, the weight of it. And I love the design of the mask. It's effectively scowling, but it doesn't look overtly villainous. It's, a, it's an interesting little tidbit to it because of the way that the, the, the pseudo-mouth is formed and the way the, the eye, eye sockets go. it's or Not eye sockets, but you know what I mean, the eye scanners. It's really well done, so great props to the design of this. By the way, for those of you not aware, most, excuse me, all of the suits, there's like five total suits in this film, all of the suits were actually designed by the people who designed and drew for Iron Man in the comics, so credit where credit is due on that one. So then we see Stark's approach. He takes out and he tests it himself. And we've actually seen this like four or five times throughout the film. But he almost dies trying to go up and test the altitude thing. This is important for two reasons. First, it's an obvious Chekhov's gun, gun situation because they want to set this up for later. But the second reason is this really is in many ways Stark's philosophy. Right here. He doesn't care about proper checks and systems when he could, when, I mean, obviously he does care about checks and systems and balances and doing all this stuff. He does care about that, but he does also believe that in order to make progress, you have to take risks. Now he probably believes that a little bit too much, but you could see the mentality, the philosophy and the way he approaches everything. In order to make this work, i got to go out and do it. And I'm just going to go out and do it because I don't have the patience for this. Bye. There's two major points he does this in the film. One is the altitude, and one is when he takes the the suit off to kill the crap out of some terrorist bastards. You know, the bad guys. I'll get to that scene in a second. Also, Jarvis has a wonderful line. We might have to do such and such to it if you want to go visit other planets. Wah, wah. Anywho. So, Coulson's there. He's awesome, still. I really, really feel like he's actually tracking Stark at this point. Although, again, I really wonder why he's not more urgent. Now, I'm not a shipper. It's not something I'm into or interested in, and for the most part, I just don't care about relationships. Excuse me, about flings, or sacks, or what people call romance, but it isn't actually romance in fiction. I've given my reasons on that 7,000 times, and I'm not going to get into that right now. That being stated, I do like the pot, pot, bleh, pepper pots and Stark being legitimately good together and having a true long-term understanding relationship with each other better than the many different things going on in the comics you know I like that better and I think it actually ties in more with that whole family thing just my opinion it also probably helps that she the two of them have great charisma and excuse me chemistry together god I do kind of wish she'd kept the extremist though that would have been kind of cool So, shortly after the ball scene, he starts talking to Christine. If you have the availability, I would love it if you could sit down and watch the scene where he's talking to Christine, that's the reporter, by the way, towards the beginning of the movie, and then this scene that happens right after the ball. Because the the difference in Robert Downey Jr.'s performance as Stark is... I'm just going to say it, it's Stark. It (laughs) It is hugely different. The disparity is gargantuan. Earlier he was confident, calm, knew exactly what he was talking about, and had probably said this 15 times before. Second time, he's angry. He is just angry and nothing else. There is a hard fury in his eyes as he realizes what's going on. And the funny thing is he goes and approaches Stain about this, and Stain says, you, can, you can't be this naive. Stark's response, I forget his exact phrasing, but he basically says, yeah, I was actually this naive. I didn't realize we were selling guns illegally under the table to make the frickin' quarterly report. That line is very important because now we finally see the true dynamic difference between Stain and Stark. Stain, well, he's evil, but my point is that Stain is someone who looks at what is necessary to happen and he just does it. He knows it's wrong. Or maybe he doesn't care. I've actually heard people argue that Stane is legitimately amoral. I don't think I agree with that, but I can see the argument for it. Stane just does what is necessary. He plays the game. And if that means selling weapons illegal, illegally to terrorists, okay, that puts food on the table. And if that means trying to uh, you know, outmaneuver people or push people out of office or take over the company, that's fine. I don't see a problem here. Stark would never have been okay with that even before his revelation. Stark is the kind of person who accepted the game, but also had the stupidity or naivete, or simply lack of understanding, to not really realize what playing the game at his level, way at the top, really meant. I've given this argument before, and I know that people have disagreed with it, but the general concept here is that once you get to a certain level of either political or financial clout, you know, political power, whatever you want to count count it as, when you get, getting up to the top and staying at the top, usually, if this isn't true in real life as well as in fiction, usually requires basically losing some of your morality and ethical capacity for being a decent person. Because there's just too much that's required of you in order to get up there and in order to stay up there. Stark, well, he basically inherited his fortune... And he happens to be really smart and can invent stuff, so... Yeah. At the 1 hour and 16 minute mark, the Iron Man suit finally shows up and starts doing its thing. And that is something I love about MCU Phase 1, by the way. I really do. It's some, I'm going to make this comment later, so forgive me for repeating myself later about what I'm about to say. How do you say that? forbid me for saying something I'm going to repeat later. One of the things I like most about the Captain America movie is that it's just as much about Steve Rogers as it is about Captain America. And we see the same thing here. This film is just as much about Tony Stark as it is about Iron Man. And I love that. I want that. I want that character focus. And I want to be invested in this person before he goes around and starts beating the crap out of people. I mean, I don't mind seeing a nice action sequence, but build up to it like they do. Speaking of which... This is very interesting to me. We've already seen Stark in the suit, you know, where he's got like the eye like the UI in front of him, and he's he's looking around in the suit and we can kind of see out the eye sockets he's got and we can see his view. So it's not like they haven't and can't show that. But when he goes after that village, we don't see him at all. We don't see Tony Stark inside the suit, and he only says one line total, he's all yours that is another great directorial choice because this is not tony stark effectively see he hasn't quite come to grips with this other identity kind of thing this is iron man this is someone who is angry and someone who wants to hurt people because they hurt other people now this is what would usually be qualified as a righteous vengeance but it is vengeance nonetheless however They then do something very clever and smart with this. So first we have the scene where he just wrecks all of them. I like to think that the guy they left behind after he said, you know, he's all yours, I like to think they beat him to death with their bare hands, because that takes a while, and I hope he suffered for it. But then, you know, he takes out the tank. Tank missile, you know, utterly wrecks everything. Then he leaves. Okay. Tony Stark slash Iron Man has proven that he can fight, that he can destroy things. But that's kind of all he's ever done. He's got to do better than that in order to really prove himself as, to be blunt, hero material. So we have his next problem, his next dilemma, is he has two F-22s coming after him that he does not want to defeat. He actively wishes to cause them no harm. And in fact, when he accidentally hurts one, he has to now go way out of his way to save that pilot. This makes a great contrast between the earlier scene, and it allows us, the audience, to see that Iron Man, or Stark, or whatever you want to call him, has capable of helping rather than just hurting. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, and then he, then he talks to Rhodes. Some good stuff there. It's funny that I think the best scene of, of of interaction between Rhodey and Stark is when neither of them are in the same room as each other. But anyways. Um, and then it's really hard to remove the armor. That makes perfect sense. I mean, he's never done it before, and it's just taking a lot of battle damage. Now... I'm going to skip ahead of my notes slightly because this is when things really start to accelerate in the film. We have effectively reached act three at this point. He mentions there's only the next mission and there's just this almost obsessive, I mean, it is obsessive look in his face. And then she says that she's going to quit. And he, and the, note that he doesn't say this aggressively. He doesn't say this like an attack. But the next thing he says is, and with a, just a little bit of shock, You stood by while I profited off the blood of of thousands, and now when I'm trying to help people, that's when you can't, when you're leaving? And she, you notice she doesn't have an immediate response for that, and then she has to take up just a moment there, and then she's like, no, you're trying to kill yourself. And that's when he calms down a little bit, comes a little bit down to the human level, is like, okay, I'm not crazy. I shouldn't be alive. The way he says that line... I actually think that was Robert Downey Jr. saying that line, if you know what I mean. I shouldn't be alive. But now I am. And I'd like to do something with it. We know that someone like Ark. with the kind of mind he has, with the kind of capabilities and access he has, he needs something to focus on. He needs that. Otherwise he will just, just spiral completely out of control. And this is now his focus. But this is how we see that Potts, the wall, really is the person to be the opposite of Tony Stark. The, I know this is going to sound like a weird analogy, but he's the air molecule. He's he's gaseous. He's just zipping around so fast he can't keep himself contained. So she helps to provide that kind of bracing so that he can Focus on something and help to keep... I I gotta be blunt. I don't think he would accomplish nearly as much as he did without her in the next several, several films. Jarvis, by the way. I haven't actually commented on Jarvis. I just realized that. Jarvis is awesome. I don't actually have a lot to say about him in this film. Jarvis is awesome. Um, They got a great actor for him. He does his lines perfectly. And he is enjoyable in every scene he's heard in. I don't have much else to say about that for the moment. So... I want to mention something really quick. I looked this up. This film occurs in lore across 9 months and 13 days. Can you believe that? Really long chunk of time there. I had no idea it was that long. Although, in hindsight, that does make sense. It's just... yikes. Also, this is a quick aside, but I've always liked the idea that S.H.I.E.L.D. was kind of pushing for recovering Stark because of Howard Stark. Um, And that's one of the reasons why, even days later, there were still helicopters actively patrolling the area, looking for someone. Just my thoughts on the matter. Anyways, so, then we see this scene, and we see Raza versus Stain. This is when the, 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 the contrast between those characters really comes into contrast. It was one of my favorite scenes because it's basically the villain establishment scene. We see Raza, who has been built up to basically be the main villain of most of the film in terms of the obvious bad guy. He lives through the earlier encounterment. He's got, he's got these Jericho weapons, missiles. He's got all these men. He's got guns. He wears the ring he just plays with. you know. So he's the big bad guy, right? Steen comes in. And just crushes him. And I don't mean literally. He crushes him intellectually. He outmaneuvers him. And in terms of the performance, Stain is a character. And I love the ear paralysis thing, by the way. Holy crap, why do they not use those everywhere? That is an insane invention. Oh my God. Um, <clears throat> I guess it was just too overpowered. That's why they didn't use it anymore. But he's like, don't worry. That's the least of your problems right now. And I love how when they go in... You know, you see all the, the terrorists with their, with their crappy old, they're actually German guns, but they're supposed to be Stark guns. And they're like, all right. And then when he comes out, all his professional, uh, you know, mercenary corps has completely disarmed them and has them on their knees in the I have surrendered position. And then they shoot them all to death because, of course, they do. It's a great establishing moment, but it also helps show the difference, uh, I want to say philosophically. Raza is makes talks about power I shall control Asia and I will rise to prominence with these new weapons stain knows exactly what he wants and how it is to get to it he is a professional he has been doing this for many years he's very experienced at it and he's really good at it and we see this contrast in their men Raza's men are a bunch of guys in the desert with guns Stain's men are elite professional mercenaries who are paid very good money to be very good at what they do. And so I love the way they present that, that contrast between the two of them. And Stain effectively takes the I am the villain ball from that point onward, for good and for bad. And that then leads to what is probably my favorite scene for, Job, uh, for Obadiah Stane. Um, he's in the room with Pepper Potts. She's downloading the data to incriminate him on being incredibly evil and also illegal. (laughs) Funny how I have to mention those separately. And it is amazing how intimidating, how almost terrifying he is when he's just there in a business suit talking calmly and calculatedly to Miss Potts. And everything he says has a certain timber to it, you know? And there's just this almost casual presentation as he does it. It's really legitimately horrifying. I love scenes that can pull that kind of a dynamic off, where the guy in the suit, who is just a normal person, is absolutely terrifying, as opposed to, I'm a giant death thing, you know what I mean? I am Taserface! Sorry, sorry. Uh, So then, you know, there's some great dynamic between the two because basically both of them are playing the game in that scene. But that's also the scene where she kind of stops playing the game and she brings Coulson in on this. It's also the scene where he, Stain, stops playing the game. This is when his motivations really come into light. I mentioned I'd talk about this later and here we are. Stain is... Jealous. I I hate to use such a crass word for it. He hates Stark. Stark has the brilliance. Stark has the mind and the charisma. Stark has the money and the women. But you know what else Stark has? The spotlight. Everyone praises Stark. Stain, probably legitimately, runs more of that company for longer than Stark does, at least as of this point in time. He probably, this is all conjecture here, deserves more credit for the success of that company than Stark does, at least for some of it. And yet he's the guy in the background. This is funny because the first time we ever see Obadiah Stain, it's the, the, the highlight reel at the awards ceremony right at the beginning where we literally see Stain in the background behind the larger Stark. He is the jealous rival. And even though it would legitimately benefit him to just... Let it be to keep selling the weapons, to keep making the deals, to keep running the company, and to keep being on top of the world. He can't help himself because he hates Stark. And that is a wonderfully human character flaw. And I love it. Because from this moment on, Stain stops playing the game. He stops trying to think about how this could work. He starts doing things that are frankly stupid because his desperation and his envy have gotten to the point where he can't deal with it anymore. Like he already made the one attempt and maybe he regretted that, maybe he didn't, and maybe he was just going to let it go. But then things start to spiral out of control even more and now it's like, okay, I had it all. And then I wanted to get the one last thing, and then I lost that, and now I'm losing everything. And he starts to get desperate. So he goes over and effectively murders Stark in his own home. Now, he doesn't shoot him or anything that stupid, but he does basically pull out his heart. There are so many ways he could be caught doing that, that that evidence could go back to him. But, again, he's desperate. And then that leads us to another wonderful scene. The box-of-scrap scene. That's actually before he rips out his heart scene, but, you know, the box-of-scrap scene. Now, I know, I know, memes, blah, blah, blah. I still love the way he says that because that is the first time we see Jeff Bridges lose it. You know, the way he portrays that character, we can see now that Obadiah Stane has finally, finally, finally stopped rolling with the punches. He can't take it anymore. He has dodged up to his limit. His HP bar is gone. He fucking built this in a freaking cave with a box of scraps. And you can just hear that frustration in there and that envy that with nothing, Stark was still able to best him. How freaking dare he? Fix it. Do it. I'm going to go steal I'm going to go murder someone in a very noticeable and, and traceable way to get this thing just so I can have my goddamn thing and it will be better than his. This will be better. And he says that constantly throughout the fight, by the way. You notice that? I've improved it. I've done better with it. It's not quite as flashy as yours, but I think it's a little better. And finally he says, he actually says, my my suit is better than yours in every way. And then, of course, the ice problem hits. (sighs) So, I'm looking at the rest of my notes here. I don't actually have much to say about the final battle. It's cool. It's actually funny. It has become a cliché for Marvel, uh, for the MCU movies, to involve the person who is the good guy fighting the person who is the bad guy, and they basically have the same powers. You know, I shrink, you shrink. I have a robot suit, you have a robot suit. You know, it's, it has become a cliche. But i got to say, in this very first real outing... Oh, also, The Abomination and Hulk, if you want to pull that one out. But I think in this outing here, it kind of works. Because while they are both people in a suit, I would like to think that they're not both the same in this one case. Because Obadiah Stane is in a giant suit. He actually moves kind of like a gorilla... The whole fight—it is legitimately intimidating—and you could tell that stain is just drinking it up. He has basically lost whatever was left of his sanity at this point, and he's just enjoying the moment. And I mean, he goes out into the frickin highway for God's sakes. Do you know how stupid that is? Really? Like, imagine he kills Iron Man, <laughs> and now he's screwed because they know it's him. They can find out that it's him, they have proof that it's him, and that suit isn't going to last long against a concerted effort of the United States military. What he did was very stupid, but he's gone by this point. So he just relishes in the moment, and he's just intimidating and powerful. But even his mentality is completely different. Stark, throughout the whole film, and this is, goes back even back to the cave and the box of scraps, has always been about skill and knowledge. I know what this is, and I know what this is, and I know how to apply it. So I'm going to apply this very carefully. Stark is a scalpel. Obadiah Stane is a giant mallet. And it comes across in the fight, in, in their dialogue, in their fighting style, what Stark tries to do versus what Stain tries to do. And the literal fact that Stain is in this giant, stronger suit who then loses to the to the intellect and cunning of Stark in a much weaker suit that is literally running out of battery, you know, on, on the moment. Now, Coulson shows up. I got two things really quick. I'm sorry, I kind of skipped ahead a little bit. Um, I do have two quick things to say about this. This is actually before the fight. Uh, first of all... Rody, for all of the problems I have with the way his character is in this film, you can tell he has Stark's back. Because he gets, you know, Pe- Pe- Pepper gets on the phone with him. And is like, hey, uh, he's not picking up his phone. Something's wrong. And and you know what Rody says? I'll go check on him. Turns the car around and freaking revs it. He thinks something's legitimately wrong. And... I've said this before about many different types of characters in fiction. I like the type of character where they're not really pleasant, or they're not really nice, or they don't really get along with people or the main character, but, but when the chips are down, I got your back. I like that type of character. Reminds me of Dandelion over in Witcher 3, which is when I really started to notice that type of character. So uh, I wanted to mention a quick thing about Colson. He shows up with like five guys. And they don't have super guns or mega tech or anything. I mean, it's worth noting SHIELD has dealt with paranormal and supernatural stuff prior to now, right? (laughs) You'd think. uh, I mean, again, this was before Thor in lore. This is before Captain America, well, the final bit of Captain America in lore, before they found the Tesseract, probably. So I could see it, but it did kind of show where SHIELD will go eventually. So then they fight, Stark wins. Stain dies and then dies and then dies. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Then we go to the, the, the coda. This is where they really threw things out the window. And credit, credit to John Favreau, to the writing team, and to Marvel for allowing them to make this thing. Because one of the most common superhero tropes ever ever going all the way back to the 30s and 40s is the idea of the secret identity in fact i think it goes back further than that i just want to name a date and not know the exact date it goes back a long freaking time secret identity right superman and clark kent i mean all the way back right and he throws it out the window and he says i am iron man and i think that really started the mix of what would eventually become the mcu because Steve Rogers doesn't hide either as Captain America. And neither does Thor, actually. Bruce Banner does, but that's for slightly different reasons. Now, next thing I want to mention, though, really quick, just really quick. It's just a visual distinction thing I wanted to bring your attention to. There's the final scene where he's doing the press conference where he admits, oh, I am Iron Man. There's this great little bit. Uh, Christine, the reporter who's been a recurring character, she's in the second film as well. Um, she is in an outfit that is deliberately designed to draw attention to it. No, not like that. I mean, everyone else is wearing fairly generic suit and tie. Your standard red tie, slight stripes, kind of black shirt, shirt and white tie thing. She's wearing a fairly um, light, refractive, refractive white dress. So the eye automatically goes straight to her. It's just a nice little bit of visual presentation that they did. And it also kind of shows how she's different from the rest of them. And it allows the audience to immediately notice that she's there before she says anything. So just good stuff. So he admits, I am Iron Man. Uh, Movie ends, and it's like, oh my god. I remember myself being like, holy crap, he actually said that at the end. And then we see Samuel L., something else, Jackson, right at the end. The Avengers Initiative. And that was the promise right there. That was Kevin Feige's little breadbasket. That was his hope right there. Remember, they weren't really sure Iron Man was going to succeed that well. They wanted to do the, what would eventually become the MCU. He wanted to do the MCU. But they weren't really sure they are going to do it. But he pushed for it, and he worked for it. And they, they filmed it in like total sequence. They did multiple different takes and multiple different versions of it. And finally they got the perfect one to lead into what would become the Avengers franchise. That was the whole idea. And, as history has shown, Iron Man 1 was an insane success. Huge critical success and massive financial success. Marvel suddenly had established itself as having legitimate film cred and was able to move forward with what would eventually become the MCU. Now, we're going to do things a little bit out of order because I feel like Iron Man 2... Well, maybe I won't. I still haven't decided which film I'm doing next. I was originally going to do Iron Man 2 next week. I might do it in order. I might cover Thor next. Regardless of what I do decide, I will be seeing you guys next week with more of MCU Phase 1. Hope you've enjoyed, guys.